Well, it is so good to have you here, those of you in the room, those of you joining us online or at our Skagit campus, glad that you're with us. And what a great, uh, great day to be here. I mean, it's the start of a brand new year. Happy New Year, by the way, 2024. Here we are. That's great. Not only that, but I don't know if you were aware of this, you can start to notice that the days are staying light longer. Yeah? Okay, that's good. And we're here lifting up the name of Jesus. I mean, what better way to start off the new year with those? That's like the trifecta of 2024. It's already been a good year right there. So I'm glad that you're here today. With a new year, very often there's resolutions, and we won't ask how many are still intact after seven days, but there's resolutions we make. Maybe there's kind of some rituals that we go through or traditions of ways we start off our new year. I was, as many of you know, I was born in the dirty south, born in Ruston, Louisiana. And in the south, there's a tradition, um, for some it's a superstition, that on New Year's Day, you eat black-eyed peas. Now, this is not a group with Fergie and Will I Am. This is, this is a legume. And you eat black-eyed peas. And if you're really from the south, you have black-eyed peas with ham hocks, collard greens, and cornbread. So anyway, and if you're a real purist, on New Year's Day, you'll eat 365 black-eyed peas. Not one more, not one less. One for each day of the year, and it's supposed to bring you good luck and wealth throughout the year. Well, it's a tradition. My mom, who is well along in years, um, she still has this tradition. So on January 1st, I called her, and she said, Bob, did you eat your black-eyed peas today? It's rare that I disappoint my mom, <laughs> but I don't think I'm in the will anymore. Because I had to break her heart to tell her that, no, I, I did not have my black eyed peas. But I did tell her about a tradition that I do have in my life on New Year's Day that I've had for 15 years or better. And that is every New Year's Day, I always go to Lake Padden and jump in at noon. It's just something that we do. And it's something I do. And uh, rain, shine, snow, ice, every single year. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a can't miss for me. And some of you have thought right now and have said to me, you're absolutely crazy. Why would you do that? But it's not just me, because usually there's several hundred people doing that with me as well. And I, I will say, honestly, I don't know of a better way to usher in a new year than a brisk jump in Cold Lake Patton. And by the way, those of you who do this at Birch Bay, can I just say the water at Lake Patton is always colder than Birch Bay. You never had to break ice off of Birch Bay. Just saying, it's not a competition, but I win. And I also want to say, in a formal way, as your pastor, you're all invited to join me next year. <laughs> January 1st, 12 o'clock, Lake Padden, we'll all do this together. I had one taker last night. So anyway, you're, you're all welcome. There, there's another New Year's tradition that's been a part of my life, not for 15 years, but about five, five years or so. And when I tell you about this tradition, some of you won't say it out loud, but you might think, you're crazy. Why would you ever do that? But it's not just me. There are hundreds that join me in this. And likewise, just like with jumping in the water, I would say there's no better way to usher in a brand new year than this tradition. And I want to invite you to this one as well. And that is our season of 21 days of prayer and fasting. Overwhelming. So some of you are saying, okay, you're 0 for 2 on your invitations. I'm not going to jump in the lake and I'm not going to not eat for 21 days. What are you going to ask next? I me mean, to give 10% of my income? What are you talking? So this is what I would say. Before you write me off, would you hear me out? Because I'm not just talking about a resolution and I'm not even really just talking about a tradition. I'm talking about seeking God, starting off the year, seeking God in a profound, impactful way. Because I believe that this whole area of fasting, this spiritual discipline of fasting, is like the Cinderella of the, of the spiritual disciplines of the spiritual practices. 
And when I say that it's the Cinderella of the spiritual disciplines, I'm not saying that the others, you know, solitude and worship and service and prayer are like ugly stepsisters. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is this spiritual discipline of fasting is this beautiful princess that is disguised in humble maiden's clothing left in the basement and rarely ever invited to go to the ball. And we miss out on something beautiful by neglecting this gift of fasting. And if you've ever read through Scripture, you'll know that the men and women of God throughout history have practiced this spiritual discipline. If you look at the people that have practiced fasting throughout Scripture, it's a who's who. I mean, I'll just give you a cursory. Moses fasted, as did Joshua, and David, King David fasted. Daniel fasted on multiple different occasions. He tells about that in his book. His friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fasted. They all fasted together. Ezra fasted. Esther, this beauty queen, she fasted. Not only did she fast, she got the whole country to fast with her for three days. Elijah fasted. Hannah fasted. Anna fasted repeatedly in the temple throughout her lifetime. John the Baptist fasted. Paul and Barnabas fasted. The New Testament church fasted. Jesus himself fasted. You just go through and there's all of these different individuals who practice this spiritual discipline of fasting. Not only did Jesus practice it, but there were times that he would teach about it. And it's interesting when Jesus would teach about fasting, when he would talk about fasting, he spent probably as much time, maybe more time, talking about how not to practice this as how to practice. Like he would point out, this is uh, you know, a way that is going to negate the beauty of it. It's going to take the power out of it. It's going to take all the God out of it. And then he would point out, this is how you do this correctly. Oh, there was a time when he told a parable in Luke chapter 18. And it's one of these times when he very specifically talks to a certain group of people. This wasn't to the thousands of people on the hillside. He's talking to a specific group of people, and Luke records that he told this parable to those who were very confident in their own righteousness. They're very self-righteous. They're filled with pride. And because of that, they looked down on others. They had judgment and condemnation towards others. So he tells this story to make a point, kind of a hypothetical story that, that he makes up. To, to give them a lesson. In the midst of that story, there's two individuals, and he uses a line. While the story is hypothetical, I believe this line is very, very intentionally selected because it points a finger directly at them. This man who is so self-righteous, who's so filled with pride, who is looking down and judging others, he made this statement as he talks to God, I fast twice a week. And I think Jesus used that phrase because fasting twice a week was a common practice with the Jewish people, but they would do it for the wrong purposes. They would do it to be seen, to be thought of being spiritual, as to be, to be, you know, kind of build themselves up. And at the end of that story, Jesus concludes with these words out of Luke 18, verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So let me just say this right up front. As we enter into a season of prayer and fasting, if you choose to participate with this, our fasting must bring us to a place of humility before God. If it does not, then we've missed the point because fasting, while it is beautiful, there are some things that can be done with wrong motives, with pride, 
with legalism that taking it from becoming from this beautiful princess of Cinderella to this ugly stepsister of self, you know, self-righteousness. Now, you can avoid that altogether by not practicing it, but I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. He's not saying, throw out the baby with the bathwater. He's just saying, let's just make sure we get it right. So today, as we start this new year, I want to spend our day talking about this. And in our time together today, I want to kind of give a, a quick overview and review of fasting. For some of you, this is brand new. You may be left with saying, I still don't fully understand it. Um, this is not going to be an exhaustive lesson on fasting. Uh, as we've been doing this traditionally for the last four or five years here at this church, I have done two full series on fasting as well as some other sermons. You can access those on our website. You can watch them. You can download them. You can listen to them. And at the end, I'll, I'll even tell you how you can do that if you want more information. But I want to give a, a brief overview, kind of a review of fasting. Then I want to shift gears and I want us to look at an incident, an event that happened in the Old Testament with an individual and other individuals who practiced this fasting uh, discipline and what God did in their midst. And then I want to turn it one more time and kind of land the plane, bring it home to us. How does this apply to us here at Cornwall Church this year and in this season? And at the end of all that, I want to give you some practical steps. It'll all happen by halftime of the Seahawks game, if you're worried about that. So don't worry about it. That's why you have DVR, and some of you will be watching on your phones in an hour and a half or so. Anyway, so here we go. You ready? Good. All right. Thanks, Mary. All right. So fasting, this is a, a, a working definition that I've used over the years when we're talking about biblical fasting. Just want to make sure we're clear. There's a medical fasting. We're not talking about that. There's even some health fasting. This is not our primary goal on this. There might be some political fasting. We're talking about biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is this. It's voluntary denial for spiritual purposes. Very important phrase here. Voluntary. I don't in any way want to invoke guilt on you. I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want to strong arm you. I don't want to have this out of some kind of compulsion or, or you have to. Listen, if anywhere in this sermon you're feeling like, oh, here comes the guilt trip, that's not my desire at all. Fasting is voluntary. If you so choose to participate with us this year, I want it to be something you decide to do, something you sign on, not like you're doing me or someone else a favor. So we're clear on that. It's voluntary. But it's voluntary denial. Historically, the classic idea of fasting is when you forego food. It's dietary, when you say no to food. I don't believe that it's exclusively about food. I think there's some benefits with that because if we ever fast from food, our body will remind us, which is a beautiful trigger to focus our attention on God and say, I want to have a deeper hunger for you. But it's not just about dietary fasting. And we're not going to be legalistic on this. In fact, there are instances throughout Scripture where there are seasons of fasting and things that are fasted from that are not dietary. And I just want to say this and be really clear. For some of you, it may not be entirely wise or healthy for you to have a dietary fast, depending on your physical condition or because of your medication or whatever. You might want to consult a doctor first. I don't want you to do something foolish. And to be real honest... For some of you, it would not be a wise thing because eating disorders are a part of your story, either past or present, and it just wouldn't be wise for you on the dietary level. 
but it's to deny ourselves something. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's saying no to something good so that we can say yes to something even better. And it's voluntary denial for spiritual purposes. Chances are, if you live long enough and if you actually go to the doctor, there will be times that you will have to fast. Maybe you fast for X numbers of hours before a blood test. Maybe you fast for so many hours or days before a procedure or or whatever. We're not talking about medical things. We're not talking about intermittent fasting for health purposes. Those are all fine and good. We're talking about for spiritual purposes. That fasting is not an end in itself. Fasting is the means to an end. And I want us to be really clear on that, that it's a spiritual purpose of drawing closer to God. When the church in Antioch was fasting, as a congregation they were fasting, the leadership was fasting, in Acts chapter 13, we see this where it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. It wasn't just like, we're going to give some stuff up. No, we're worshiping the Lord. And you see it throughout Scripture where there's fasting and prayer, fasting and worship, fasting and repentance, fasting and, and, and confession, fasting and, and all of these things. That the goal of this fasting is to focus on our walk with Christ. You know, our, our whole purpose around here is to help people find and follow Jesus. If in our fasting we are not following Jesus closer, then we've missed it. There was, it's all a waste of time that we want to do this to follow Jesus. Now, I mentioned that Jesus not only practiced the discipline of fasting, but there were times that he spoke about it. And probably the, the times that he spoke about it the most were recorded in Matthew's gospel. One of them was in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about praying, talks about giving, but he also talks about fasting. And when he does these kind of these back-to-back-to-back teachings, he starts with these words. When you, when you pray, when you give, when you fast, it's almost like Jesus just assumed that you would, that we would. Now, in that instance, in Matthew chapter 6, it's where he, he does some corrective teaching at first. When you fast, don't do it this way, to be seen by others so that they think that you're so spiritual. If that's it, you know, you've got your reward. Instead, no, no, do this with you and your father in mind. Go into your, you know, you know don't make it obvious. But he says, when you fast. He doesn't say, if you fast. Now, if right now you're saying, okay, here comes the guilt trip. I'm not bringing a guilt trip. I'm just quoting Jesus. He said, when you fast. Now, three chapters later, Matthew chapter 9 John the Baptist, some of you know him. John the Baptist, um, John the Baptist had kind of an austere lifestyle, um, very rigid, very stringent. Uh, he was definitely not a slave to fashion, if you've known his life. And even in his, in his diet, I mean, there was things from birth, there were some things that he fasted from. John never, ever touched alcohol, never touched fermented drink. He fasted from alcohol his entire life. But even in his diet, I mean, it was very weird and strict in, him, in what he would eat. And so he has some disciples, and the whole reason of disciples is to learn from the one who you're following, your, your rabbi, your master. So his disciples are following, and they probably, 
may dress like him, may live like him, may eat like him, may fast like him. Meanwhile, Jesus and his disciples are over here having a party with the tax collectors and the prostitute. Wine's flowing and so is the food. And John the Baptist's disciples are going, hey, wait, hey, wait, wait a second. How come we fast, but your guys don't fast? And Jesus made it really clear, the whole purpose of fasting is to draw closer to him. And he refers to himself as the bridegroom. He said, why would you, why would you fast when the bridegroom is right in your presence? And when that bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. So again, you see in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus doesn't say, then they might fast, or then they'll consider fasting, but he says, they will. So Jesus' teaching was not if, but when, not might, but will. It's almost like Jesus expects that his followers will engage with this spiritual discipline. But with that, Jesus' expectation is an invitation, not an obligation. I want us to be really clear on that. That Jesus would know that he's inviting them not to do something dutifully, but to experience something and discover something beautifully, that they could have this not I have to, but I get invited to do this, that I can say no to earthly physical desires in order to say yes to divine spiritual realities. And to be able to have that and to know that God will meet us in the midst of that. The goal is this. The goal is a heart for God, not just the hand of God. The goal is that we would have a heart for God, not just that we can, like, if I do this and somehow God's obligated to bless me, to answer my prayer, to give me what I'm wanting, that this is going to somehow, you know, twist his arm. That's not the goal. That becomes very selfish. The goal is to come and offer to God the offering of emptiness to allow him to fill us. Alicia Britt Cole, in her book, uh, 40 Days of Decrease, which is a fascinating different take on fasting. She wrote these words, God seems more interested in what we are becoming than in what we are giving up. And I, I, um, I don't know, a couple years ago, I, I preached on this and admitted that there have been, fasting is a practice that I've, I've engaged in most of my life, but there have been so many times when I've done it wrong. So many times when my motive was impure. So many times when it was legalistic. So many times when I was more focused on what I'm giving up than what I'm pursuing. So many times I'm thinking, well, I can't do this, I can't eat this, can't whatever, until this. And I'm more focused on that clock because at the strike of midnight, hello. And I miss it completely. Alicia says, maybe God doesn't care so much about what it is you're giving up or how long you're giving up or how often but about what we're allowing him to do within our own hearts. Now, that's an overview of fasting. If some of you are saying, boy, I'd like to know more. Like I said, I've preached hours of sermons that you can access if you want. There's great stuff online. We're going to have some resources we'll have available for you at the end of our time together today. But I just wanted to kind of review so that we get our mindset right about what this even is and, and what is our heart going into it. All right, so the second thing is, I want us to look at an instance where fasting was practiced, and I want us to look in the Old Testament. I want us to look in the book of Nehemiah. We haven't been there for a while, 
book of Nehemiah. If you have an old school Bible with pages and stuff, it's about a third of the way through. If you get to Psalms, you've gone too far back up. Otherwise, just punch it in if you want to follow along. Let me, while you're looking, because I see you all are, while you're looking for that, let me give you some historical backdrop and the context for the event that we're going to look at out of Nehemiah chapter 1. You may remember that God is in a covenant relationship with Israel. The problem is Israel always strays off track. They're always following after the foreign gods. They're always kind of doing their own thing. And God usually sends a prophet to kind of bring them back around. And sometimes he has to do more than just say words. Sometimes he has to kind of bring about some loving discipline. And this was the case. He let them know again through the prophets, hey, if you don't get things right, because I love you, because we're in this relationship, because I want you to experience the goodness of, of a covenant relationship, if you don't choose to come back in line, then I'm going to put you in timeout. Those aren't the exact words from the Old Testament, but it's what it was. Um, and I'm going to use the Babylonians to enforce this for me. And that's what happens. There's a Babylonian exile. King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, destroys Jerusalem, the temple, takes all the leading men and women, all the, 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 the crim of the crim of the, off the top and takes them all into exile 800 miles away or whatever. And there they are in Babylon. At this point, Jeremiah the prophet writes those words that we love. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you hope and a future, prosper you, all that. It's just going to be in 70 years. And then he says, while you're there, go ahead and build some houses for yourself. Get established. Start a family. Have children. Let them get married. Have grandchildren. Bless the city because you're going to be there for a while. It's going to be 70 years you're going to be there. Well, Nebuchadnezzar comes and goes, and then there's uh, Darius, uh, who's the king, and, and Cyrus. But anyway, as these other kings come along, they allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to fix things. And so Zerubbabel, I know I'm giving you way too much detail, but I love this stuff. Zerubbabel takes a group of people back to rebuild the temple. Ezra goes back, helps people get established with the word of God. In the meantime, some of the Jewish people decide to stay there. I mean, this is where they were born and raised. This is where they got married. This is their home. This is what they're established here. Nehemiah was one such individual. He had been born there. And now this is years later. Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Darius is gone. Cyrus is gone. Xerxes, the Persian, the, the Babylonians fall. The Persians rise. Xerxes comes. Now the king of Persia is a man named Artaxerxes. Nehemiah was born there in Babylon, Persia. He was raised there, he's established there, and he gets this incredible job right with the king, King Artaxerxes. The scripture says that he is a cupbearer for the king. Now, most often, those of you who've ever heard anyone talk about cupbearer, it's someone who tastes the wine to make sure it's not poisoned before it's given to the king. And so he's saying, sign me up for that job. You know, it sounds like a drunk guinea pig. Perfect. I'm the guy for this. Okay. But it's a whole lot more than just tasting the wine. That's a part of it. To be the cupbearer was a very prestigious position with a great deal of authority, with a front row position with King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man on the face of the planet. Not only that, but it's a very well-paying job. So as you see, Nehemiah's situation is pretty nice. He's probably got a wonderful home, a family. He's got this incredible job that has a great deal of authority, a great deal of privilege with it, a great deal of money that comes with it, and he doesn't have to do any manual labor. He probably oversees the, 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 the chefs and some of the other the household duties of those things, but he's there, and he's got a, a front row seat with King Artaxerxes. All right, that's the background. 
We're going to get to scripture here in just a second. So apparently, again, people could come and go from Babylon, Persia, over to Jerusalem, Israel, and such. Well, one day, there's a group of guys that come from Judah, probably to visit some relatives, some of the people that stayed there in the, in the foreign country. And one of them is a guy named Hanani. And Nehemiah says, hey, Hanani, how's things in Jerusalem? I mean, Zerubbabel went back and rebuilt the temple. It must be amazing as people are coming together to worship God there. And Ezra came back to reestablish people with, with, the, the, God, with, with, with the word of God. And that must be amazing. And, and I, oh, I've heard about Jerusalem like this, this jewel on the top of Mount Zion. It must be fantastic. This beautiful city of God and the people of God. And this is their response to his question. How are things back in J-Town? Not as good as he was hoping to hear. Now, Nehemiah chapter 1. Man, that was a long intro. <laughs> Anyone still awake? Okay, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This was not what he was hoping to hear. First of all, the condition of the people. They're in great trouble. And if you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, and well, I won't give you more of that backstory, but there was division, there was opposition, there was morale was down politically, culturally, nationally. It was just not a good situation. And he uses the word disgrace because the people have yet again drifted away from God. They're not going to do the sacrifices in the temple. They're, they're not following the ways of Yahweh. And, and, and now it's not just nationally and morally morale-wise, it's spiritually. And in addition to that, the town itself, the, the city walls have been broken down, which in that culture would mean there's great insecurity and vulnerability, that there's not safety in the city and the gates that are supposed to be this stronghold of coming and going, they've been burned to the ground. And I would imagine if I'm Nehemiah, I'd be going, whoo, boy, am I glad I stayed here. I got my house, I got my job, I got my, my check, things are good here. But that's not his response. He hears this message, and he's gripped with this burden, and he grieves, and he's saddened. His response is this, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days... I mourned and fasted, here it is, fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He doesn't just think, wow, bummer for you guys. Your town's not in good shape. He's weeping and he's mourning. And he says, and for some days, we don't know how many days. Some of your translations say are certain days, many days. But for a certain number of days that we don't know, he just mourned and he prayed and he fasted. Now, there are people throughout the Old Testament and the New they would fast for three days. There's instances of fasting for 10 days, for 21 days, for 40 days. We don't know. But for some days, he was gripped with this. And he prays and fasts. He doesn't just give up. He prays and fasts. And look at this. He said, I prayed and fasted before the God of heaven. This is so beautiful. He has a front row seat to the most powerful man on the planet. And we're not talking about for a four-year term. I mean, he's going to be on the, the, the throne there for a while. And it's like his dynasty. 
He could go straight to Artaxerxes. He could go to all the pagan gods of Babylon and Persia. But he says, even though I have access to the most powerful man on earth, I'm going to go to someone who makes him pale in comparison. I'm going to the God of heaven, the God who is unlimited, the God who has all knowledge, the God who has all power, the God who is, has no limit to his reach. And then we get this picture of how he approaches this season of weeping and mourning and praying and fasting. And he says this in verse 5, 6, 5. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, we've already talked about that, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Here's one of the things that we need to learn from Nehemiah. He is facing some circumstances that got, have him grieving and heavy with a burden. Doesn't know how it's going to turn out. It seems hopeless. It seems helpless. And the first thing he does is not blame God, not question God. He worships God. We can learn something here, people. When we're going through something, when it doesn't seem fair, when it seems unjust, when it seems hopeless, the first thing we ought to do is worship God. And you can read this when he says, you know, I was praying to God, you great and awesome God. Kind of sounds like he's buttering God up before he makes the big request. You know, like, let's uh, kind of make God think that he's everything so that when we ask this, he's in a good mood. Because sometimes I think that's what we do, right? Oh, God, great God. And we know we're just kind of getting this out of the way so that we can ask what we really want. Can I just say something here? Remind us. God does not need our worship. We need to worship God. If we never worship God again a day in our life, God would not change who he is. He's not insecure, moping around, my people don't love me, they don't worship me, I'm having a bad day. He is not that way. It doesn't change him at all. If we fail to worship, we will not become who God created us to be. We need to worship because when we worship it puts our perspective right. It reminds us of who he is and who we are. It reminds us of what he is capable of and how we are completely dependent on him. And the beautiful thing is when we get this perspective of the awesome, almighty God of heaven, it, there's this juxtaposition at the same time. It brings about incredible humility and great boldness and confidence because of who he is. And so he just starts off and he worships God this great, almighty God. And he just talks about the character of God, the God who keeps his covenants, the God who's faithful even when we are faithless, the God who called us into a covenant, the God who has a covenant of, not of obligation, but a covenant of love. And he recognizes that they've been unfaithful. They haven't stayed true to the covenant. But he worships God, and then he comes not demanding that God do something, but humbly pleading with God. Verse 6, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He doesn't come in there saying, God, I need you to do this. God, I expect you to do this. God, there's my timeline. God, here's my wish list. There's a humility. He comes saying, would you turn your ear toward us? Would you turn your eye toward us? 
I'm not here demanding anything. I'm your servant. But there's an intentionality and an intensity. He doesn't just toss up a bedtime prayer saying, God, bless your people, amen, see you in the morning. He's coming before him day and night. And look at the nature of his prayer. It's not self-serving at all. He's not saying, God, bless me. Give me more. Pour out more of your abundant blessing on me. He's saying, I'm praying that you would hear my prayer for your people, for Israel, for others, for those that have strayed, that you would call us back. And then as if he wasn't humble enough, then he just has this repentance, this time of confession in verse 6, verse 7. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees and laws that you gave your servant, Moses. Now, there's a whole lot more that he prays, and I would encourage you to read it on your own in Nehemiah 1, and then what happens. But the reason I chose this story, and the reason I love this story, is because it gives us a really great pattern as we enter into our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Our mindset our heart posture, our approach toward God, how we ought to be. It's an amazing thing because he pours himself out and he pleads with God, would you turn your ear toward us? Would you turn your eyes towards us? And God does. God answers his prayer. And what's amazing is God says, you've got this burden, you have this prayer, I'm going to answer it. Part of the answer is actually you. I'm going to put a calling on your life. I put that burden on you. You're going to be part of the answer. And then God does some things that could only be described and could only be attributed to the hand of God. That Nehemiah experiences favor three times over from this pagan god, Arte, uh, pagan king Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes gives him the freedom to leave his position, this royal position, this authority position. The number two guy right there says, go on back to Jerusalem. That's what you need to do. And in addition to that, to make sure you get there safely, I'm going to send armed guards to make sure that you're not harmed. And in addition to that, it sounds like you've got a big project. I'm going to resource your project for you. Only God could do that. Artaxerxes has nothing to gain from this. But God changes it. Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. He may have never been in Jerusalem before. He might be a no-namer in Jerusalem. They might, they might not even know who he is. And yet somehow he's able to rally the troops to get people to come together to galvanize them for this project. He faces unbelievable opposition locally, so much so that the people as they're repairing the wall, they keep one hand on their sword as they're working on the wall because the opposition is so fierce. And with all of this thing, the people rally together, this insurmountable project is completed in 52 days, record time, the walls are rebuilt, the gates are rehung, and in addition to that, chapter 9, he calls them all to prayer and fasting, and there's a revival that breaks out. It's amazing what happens, and where did it all start? Nehemiah praying and fasting, humbling himself before God, and God heard. So let's land this plane. Let's bring this home to us. Cornwall Church, January 2024. Because I think of the five years that we've done this prayer and fasting, I am more acutely aware this year than maybe ever before of how important this is for us as a church. 
because I believe that we're at a very important intersection, a, a very crucial juncture in the life of this church. And I believe that God has opened up opportunities for us, just waiting for us to walk in obedience with him. I mean, there's some great things that God is doing. I mean, our Skagit campus, every week, they, they run out of parking spaces. We're talking about going to two services down there because just, there's just, they just keep growing. And if you've ever been to our Skagit campus, there are little kids everywhere. The impact of young families down there, it's, it's phenomenal what God is doing in our Skagit campus. Here in Bellingham, just a few weeks ago at our Christmas Eve services, the largest Christmas Eve services we've had in four or five years. And can I say something else? On Christmas Eve, if you were here, the, the worship team, massive group of people, five of the individuals that were leading us in worship are 18 years of age or, or younger. I love that that next generation is stepping up and taking the leadership roles. Great opportunities for us here. We as a church are 100% debt-free, which frees up budget to be able to make bigger impacts in our community. So many great opportunities for us. But there's some realities that we need to be aware of as well. The reality is that we live in a world and a culture where there's not necessarily a favorable attitude toward churches. Christian churches. In fact, it's not just an apathy. There's an, even an antagonism toward churches. And as a culture, as a general rule, it's not a drifting from God's standards. It's a sprinting away from God's standards. And when you hold to God's standards, there's going to be opposition. That's our reality. The reality in the church is that after COVID, people's Church attending patterns are just different. Not you guys, of course. You're Jesus followers. You have perfect attendance for 2024. You have not missed one week. Amazing. But it's the reality. People's giving financially is different. Some of it's the economy. Some of it has to do with the questionable nature of some churches and church leaders. Some of it, quite frankly, has to do with some tax bracket changes that happened a couple years ago. It's just different. It's reality. And let's just be really, really honest and transparent. There's a reality for us as a church right now that we've gone through a season of loss. I mean, I'm grateful that God called Pastor Kip and that Pastor Kip was obedient to go be the pastor at New Life Fellowship, and God's doing incredible things in their midst right now. But there's a loss that I grieve. And Pastor Brian being obedient to God, closing the chapter here and, and going in faith of what God would have next for him. But there's a loss and there's a grieving here. And these guys have been a part. They both were campus pastors at our Skagit campus. They both were a part of our teaching team. Both were involved in our online ministries and in our ministries here. They were pastors. There's a, there's, a, there's a loss. It's a grieving. And, and hear me all the way out. Don't freak out about this. But there's another reality that I am well into. I mean, six months into my 60s. We need to pray and fast, brethren. 
And I'm not planning on wrapping things up, but the truth is this. After 31 years being your senior pastor, I, I recognize that I'm entering into this last run, this last chapter, last season. I'm not sure how many years it'll be, but this is the last one. And I do not want to coast into retirement. I want to see God do things in and through us in these next years. And when we hand that baton, when I hand that baton to the next generation, that this church is more powerful, more thriving, more spiritually mature, reaching out and making a bigger impact than we have in years. I long for that. See, when I realize all of this stuff, that there are some challenges and there are some opportunities, I am so acutely aware that the most important thing for us as a church right now is this 21 days of prayer and fasting to humble ourselves before God, to repent of our sins, to come pleading that he would give us wisdom and direction and provision for this next season, this next chapter. And so as your pastor, I don't want to guilt you into this, but I want to invite you in. And what if, What if this year, the 21 days of prayer and fasting, wasn't just about us individually seeking God? That's all beautiful. But what if this year, it was us together as a community for our community? What if together as a community, we were fasting and seeking God? And we were seeking God for our community here at Cornwall Church, for the wisdom, for the direction, for the provision, for all the things that we need, that together as a community, for our community, and not just in this room, but for our community outside of these walls as well, that we would have a greater impact, that the truth of Jesus Christ, that his grace and his forgiveness and his life and his hope and his healing would be available to anybody and everybody and would see a greater impact, that together as a community, we're doing this for our community. Um, I'm probably going to, a little spoiler alert here, 10 years ago there was a book that came out, I read it, could not put it down, it has recently become a movie called The Boys in the Boat, so if you haven't seen it, you haven't read it, you know, and you don't want to just do this for a minute, fantastic movie, true story about the, uh, the uh, eight-man crew team that went to the 1936 Olympics, but from University of Washington. The closing line of the story, this, if, you, if you don't want me to spoil it here, closing line of the, soul, the whole movie is the grandpa is talking to his grandson, his grandson is saying, you know, what was it like to be on an eight-man crew? And he said these words, we weren't eight, we were one. And I heard that and I thought, what if? What if we weren't two campuses? What if we weren't hundreds or thousands of people? What if we were one? Pulling on the oars in sync, humbling ourselves before God, pleading with him, confessing our sins, coming before him saying, God, what would you have for us? What if we together as a community sought God as one? And Joel calls the community to this kind of season. He says this in Joel chapter 2, verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children. Let's do this together. So I'm going to invite you, starting this Thursday, January 11th through the 31st, these last 21 days of January, that we would go into this season of prayer and fasting. You're saying, wait, wait, so I can't eat for 21 days? Hold on, slow down. 
I don't want to tell you what to fast from, how often to fast, or how long to fast. I want to invite you to put a plan together, seek the Lord, and then we together in this season are seeking him for 21 days. Let me just uh, real quickly tell you how I approach this because it, it helps to have an intentional plan when you go into a season like this. Let me just tell you my approach to this. This isn't like to say, ooh, look at Bob, or you have to do it this way. I'm just going to throw this out to you. If there's something that works for you, say, ooh, I like that, you know, cafeteria plan, throw it all out, whatever. When I approach the 21 days and I put together a plan, I look at it in three different levels. One is, what are the things that I will give up for 21 days, the entire season, the entire 21 days? And I'm just telling you, it's not all food, okay? But, joked about this last year, but it's absolutely true, cookies goes on that list. And chubby hubby ice cream. Actually, also, I have a huge sweet tooth. So desserts, sweets, for those 21 days, just not going to do it. So, And there might be some things that you say, you know what? I, you know, I will, if, I, if I don't have this for 21 days, I'll survive, but I'll notice it. And it might be something. Another thing, I always look for what are the things dietary that I'm going to say no to, and what are the non-dietary things that I might say no to for those 21 days. So let me just throw this out to you. As options, you might say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, for those 21 days, I'm not going to drink soda. I'm not going to have any pop at all. Okay, good. Or I'm not going to have um, ch- snacks, chips, whatever it might be. Or, or I might not have the sweets. Or I might not have alcohol. Or I might not, I've got to be really careful on him. I might not have coffee. I know, I know, I know. I'm just saying. Um, or, or caffeine. Or, or whatever it might be. And then there's maybe some non-dietary things. You know, maybe I'm just going to just close down the Facebook stuff, all the social media. I'm just going to just stay off. I'm just going to fast from that for a few weeks. Maybe it's Netflix. Maybe it's television. You know, maybe it's, it's, I don't know, some app or some video game. I don't know what it is. But for me, I always look at what are some things that for 21 days I'm just going to say no to. And I, there, I, I mean, stuff that I will miss. I mean, if it's like saying no to cats and broccoli, not a problem. I'll never notice any difference. So it's stuff that I'll miss so that it reminds me to seek God. The second layer is, what are some things that I will do on a weekly basis? Not for the whole 21 days, but every week. And for you, maybe it's like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. I'm going to skip lunch on Wednesday and use that time to go and pray or read scripture or whatever it might be. Or maybe say, you know, I'm going to, on Tuesday and Thursday until 4 or 6 in the evening, I'm going to do kind of a, kind of a um, that, what's that fasting again? That intermittent. intermittent fast. I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to do the Daniel plan, kind of do just mo- more fruits and vegetables, whole foods and nothing processed, Wh- whatever it might be. And then there's a third level for me. And that is, at least once during the 21 days, I want to do something that really is going to be a stretch for me. And for some of you, you may say, you know, I've never done a 24-hour fast. I'm going to do that. Or maybe it's, I'm going to do two or three days to start this or to end it or something like that. Now, whatever it is, I'm not going to dictate, but I just want to encourage you to put together a plan. And it's not just to give up but it's to fill up. It's to say no, to say yes. And instead of this, then now we use that time and that energy and that focus on prayer, on solitude, on serving, on scripture, on worship, on meditation, on all these things. And it might be helpful, 
when you put your plan together, to share that with a friend or a family member, especially if it's going to mean that you're not eating. Like, okay, guys, if all of a sudden you just stop eating your wife's meatloaf and you have a reason for it, but you haven't shared it with her, it could be tense. You know, just maybe you might want to share some stuff. Not as a, hey, look what I'm giving up, and not as a, hey, it's a competition. It's an accountability and just to make the same way. So with all that, today on your way out, you can pick up one of these Teach Us to Pray booklets. This is what we put this together. Um, on the front end, there's a lot of the things that I've talked about briefly, different kinds of fast, different ideas about how to fast, putting a plan together, the sermon series that I mentioned, how to, how to reference those and, uh, and all that. And then there's 21 days of devotions that have been written by our staff and some of our volunteers so that each day we're reading the same devotional. This is also, for those of you online, this is also available on the YouVersion app. I think it goes live tomorrow. I think best way on YouVersion is to type in Cornwall Church, and then it will pull up different ones. This year is called Teach Us to Pray, if you want to do that, for those 21 days. But I would encourage you uh, to do that. So, let me say it again. No guilt. No obligation. No arm twisting. As your pastor, I'm saying... I am so aware that right now, this is the absolute most important thing for us as a church in this next rest of this month. And I want to invite you. And I want to stretch you. And I want to challenge you. Because there's this beautiful thing called fasting that has been relegated to the basement for far too long. And that we could be a part of this. We go in here not demanding anything from God, but with a spirit of expectancy. Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And that's what we're doing. So I invite you, I invite you to earnestly seek Him together as a community for our community. 